Go Law Enforcement. Go Law Enforcement. Go Law Enforcement. Go Law Enforcement. The podcast that makes your law enforcement dreams happen. Welcome to the Go Law Enforcement podcast brought to you by GoLawEnforcement.com. I'm your host, Joe Lebowski. Passing the police exam is a vital step towards becoming a law enforcement officer. GoLawEnforcement.com can help you pass the police exam and get a score that will get you hired. Check out GoLawEnforcement.com. Paul Bishop spent 35 years with the Los Angeles Police Department. 25 of those years is a detective investigating sex crimes. In this episode of the Go Law Enforcement podcast, Detective Bishop discusses how to successfully conduct interviews and interrogations. Hi, I'm Paul Bishop. I'm a 35-year veteran of the Los Angeles Police Department. I had always wanted to join the LAPD. I was eight years old, and I have to make the confession that I was watching the man from UNCLE, of all things. And I told my parents at eight years old, after seeing the man from UNCLE, I wanted to be a policeman. And I never grew out of that. So all those years later, I joined the Los Angeles Police Department, and I knew that I didn't want to be a patrol officer. I knew that what I wanted to be was a detective. Now, normally that path to detective takes five to seven years at minimum. I was back working detectives in two years and never looked back from that point on. And it was, for me, the greatest of all careers. It suited my personality. It was something different every day. Yes, there were challenges, but there were challenges that could be faced and overcome. So it was the right career choice for me. In the 35 years that I worked with the LAPD, I spent uh, over 25 years investigating sex crimes. And 20 of those years were spent running a sex crimes unit of 30 detectives. I covered about 25% of the city. Uh, In doing that, I was able to really delve into the one area that fascinated me in law enforcement, and that's interview and interrogation. Because so much of what we do in sex crimes is he said, she said situations, and trying to get to the truth of the matter is often very difficult with the physical evidence because it can be explained in many different ways. So our biggest tool is to get to the truth through the use of interview and interrogation. This applies equally to the suspects as it does to the victims because sex crimes is such an emotionally infused crime that we spend a lot of time trying to get victims to tell us the truth about exactly what happened. And when we started to concentrate on our interview and interrogation techniques, we ended up with a 95% clearance rate for our sex crimes for the year. Now, obviously, if we're one of four centralized units, there's there's three other units in the city, and the closest one to us was 64% clearance rate. It was our interview and interrogation emphasis that we went through over and over again to try to get to the truth of these cases that we were investigating. We would have, every week, we would have what I called a campfire, and every all the detectives would gather together, and we would read the reports that we have been assigned that week out loud, because invariably, one detective would go, oh, I have the other half of that case, or, oh, I know who that suspect is because I've worked with them before. All of those kind of things came together, and then what we would do is we would then watch 
the videos of our interrogations for that week. And we would be vicious in taking them apart. Why did you ask that question? You missed this. You missed that. That was interesting. You know, why did you go down that route? What made you go in that direction? Interrogation is a perishable skill. So what I would tell my detectives is, you know, we go all around the city. So if you go into a police station and there's a burglary suspect sitting on the bench, well, that's got nothing to do with sex crimes. But ask to the detectives or the officers who arrested that person, are you going to interview him or interrogate him? No, no, no. We got enough evidence. Say, hey, do you mind if I talk to him? No, go right ahead. Take him in a room and try something different. Because if you screw it up, you're screwing up their case, not ours. As a result of that, my folks began to get really good at interrogations. And one of the things that we found was most important is what led us to the belief that the success or failure of an interrogation is determined before the first question is asked. Now, today, when I teach interrogation seminars and I say that to detectives, these are guys who've got seven to 20 years on the job that do interrogations day in and day out. They look at me like I'm out of my mind. How can you determine the success or failure of interrogation before you've asked the first question? Well, I say to them, okay, what do you do to prepare for an interrogation? Invariably, what they will say is, I check the suspect's record and I read the crime report and I go talk to the guy. And I tell them that's a recipe for failure because you haven't prepared yourself to go into that room and conduct the interrogation in a successful manner. What do you mean? Okay. Do you ever look at a suspect in an interrogation room before you go into the room? Well, yes, sometimes. And if he's asleep with his head down on the table that's in there, what is he? Well, he's guilty. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That's an old detective's tale that if a suspect's asleep in the interrogation room, he must be guilty. Why? Now they can't answer that question. I can tell them why. It's because of anxiety. The body hates anxiety. Guilty suspect put in an interrogation room is feeling the anxiety of being in that interrogation room and being guilty, and his body shuts him down, put your head down, go to sleep. An innocent suspect in an interrogation room is looking around or banging on the door. Hey, who's going to come in here and talk to me? So it isn't a guarantee, but now we have an indication that we have the right person that's in there. Okay, what does this person look like? What does this suspect look like? Is he dressed up in a suit and tie? Is he a gangbanger? How is it that you're going to approach this suspect when you go into the room? If he's a gangbanger and you go in there in your suit and tie and, and you know, your scum belt on, your badge showing, you're immediately putting yourself at a disadvantage. If you go in there in your police uniform to talk to him, you're putting yourself at a disadvantage. If you go in there and you're, you take off your uniform shirt or you put on a casual shirt, you don't have your tie, and you're going in there in a different manner, you are smoothing out the playing field for yourself because you're not immediately putting a barrier in front of you. Talking about barriers, why in the world do we have these huge tables in our interrogation rooms? Every time I see the first 48 on television, and I see a detective sitting on one side of a table and a suspect sitting on the other side of a table, I go nuts. And my wife makes me turn the television off and walk away. Because you're missing 50% of the body language tells that are going to let you know if you're on the right track or not with a suspect. So get those tables out of the room, sit in a chair in front of the suspect like you're paying attention to him. The most valuable commodity in the world is attention. People want it. They'll do anything to get it. And if you're giving it to your suspect, they're going to feel that connection. 
you also have to decide what is the point of your interrogation? What is it that you want to get from this interrogation? Well, we want to get a confession. Really? Do you want to get a confession or do you want to get the truth? There's a big difference. Do you really want to get the truth or do you want to force the suspect to lie to you? Now, this all depends on what your physical evidence is at the time. Let me give you an example. I have a case of a 25-year-old teacher, a male English teacher at an all-girls Catholic school. Now, this guy is lean and mean. He's got an eight-pack instead of a six-pack. He's got the long, flowing Lord Byron locks. He's got to be the center of adoration for all of these female Catholic school girls. Well, he's taken one of them home with him and had his way with her. And she's made a complaint, and I'm investigating that. This suspect has a double doctorate. He has a doctorate in English, and he has a doctorate in rocket science. He's a real rocket scientist. Do you think that this guy thinks he's smarter than me? Yeah, I can make that assumption. And I want to use that against him. So I asked him to come down to the police station, which he does in his arrogance because he wants to see what I have. And he knows I'm not going to get him to say anything wrong, doesn't he? So I go into that room and I am wearing not my detective suit and tie. I have put my blue suit on, my uniform, because I want him to look at me and go, you're nothing but a stupid policeman, as Dr. No said to James Bond in the first Bond film movie, you're nothing but a stupid policeman. I want this guy to think I've got stupid tattooed on my forehead because I know he's not going to confess to me. He's not going to tell me that he had his way with his victim. So I begin to ask him questions. Have you ever had any of your students over to your apartment? No, Detective Bishop, I would never do that. Have any of them ever followed you home? No, Detective Bishop. Have any of them ever turned up in the parking lot of the, you know, the complex where you live? No, Detective Bishop, nothing like that would ever happen. I continue to ask the same type of question over and over and over to the point where he is getting really pissed at me. No, no, Detective Bishop, I told you no. Well, what this guy doesn't know is that I have the victim in the next room drawing me a floor plan of his apartment. This is where he keeps the condoms. This is where the champagne is. This is where his wife's pictures turn to the wall. Now what I have to do is I get a search warrant. I go out and I take pictures of the layout of his apartment. I go into court. I show those pictures. I match it up with the floor plan that the victim has drawn. And then I play that tape of that interrogation. No, no, no. What's the jury to think? He's a liar. Now, the point of my interrogation was to get him to deny, not to get him to admit to what he'd done. That's a whole different approach, and I needed to decide that before I went in the room. One of the other things that you have to do as an interrogator is you have to have two lonely liberal voting brain cells in the back of your head who are willing to accept the fact that a suspect is innocent. Otherwise, you're going to get yourself in trouble because you'll get locked in and won't be objective and won't actually hear what the suspect is trying to tell you. Let me give you another case in point. My partner and I get called out to a uh, high-rise hotel up in one of the top four suites. There is a female business executive. How do we know? Because she tells us she's the CEO of her company and gives us her business card. And she is claiming that one of the low-level employees, a parking attendant, 
came up to her apartment, bringing her briefcase that she'd left in her car, came into the, not the apartment, but the hotel room and raped her. And she's, you know, a little bit beat up and she's, you know, appropriate when we're talking to her. And she identifies the parking attendant. I know this guy. He's got a prior record for rape. In fact, he's just been released from the California Youth Authority two weeks earlier for the crime of rape. And who arrested him and put him there? I did. So I know this guy. So we go in lukewarm pursuit of this guy. We're out at his house, and I get a call from the station. And they tell me, hey, this guy is down here at the station saying he needs to talk to you right away, Paul. Can you come in and talk to them? Well, who is it? Well, it turns out it's our suspect. So I go to the station, you know, meet him in the lobby, take him upstairs, put him in the interrogation room. When I go in there, he looks at me and says, Detective Bishop, don't even advise me of my rights. I'm going to tell you exactly what happened. And I'm thinking, are you out of your mind? You're going back to jail, buddy. I mean, I could have booked him right then and there with what probable cause we had. Two hours later, my partner and I come out of the interrogation room and we look at each other and we're going, there's something weird here. He's telling the truth. It's got the ring of truth. Everything that he says, every time we try to get him to change his story, he is spot on. Yeah. He went up there. Yes, he had sex with her, but she came on to him and she wanted it rough. She's just two weeks out of the CYA, but he is absolutely denying the rape charges. And we believe him. So what do we got to do? So we go out and we pick up the victim. We bring her down to the police station. We do put her in the victim's interview room. But now we switch from interview, trying to get information from somebody that they want to give you, to interrogation trying to get information from somebody that they don't want to give you. And within 15 minutes, she is in tears and admits that she's been doing this all the way across the country, staying at a high-end hotel, making an allegation against a low-level employee, waiting until the next day when that suspect is arrested and the hotel lawyers contact her and offer her money immediately. She takes the cash and runs before the case goes to court. She's done this six times across the country, and we're able to backtrack it and find out all of these places that she's done this at. So she ended up going to jail that night instead of the suspect. But we could easily have booked that suspect right up front. I could have easily gone to our uh, DA who handles all our cases and said, hey, this guy needs to go back to prison. Could have prosecuted, filed against him, gone into court, And a jury would look at this guy and go, oh, just by his appearance, he's guilty. This guy could have gone back to jail. Now, whether or not that would have been a better turnout, I don't know. It's not my job to judge that. My job is to get to the truth. And in this case, the truth was that that suspect at that moment was innocent. The difference between an interview and an interrogation for me is an interview, you're trying to get information from people that they want to give you. So they are willing to cooperate and go along with you, and you may just have to get them to the point where they can give you that information. An interrogation is trying to get information from people that they don't want to give you. And so there's that antagonism involved in that that you have to overcome. When I go in to interrogate a suspect, I have a finely tuned interrogation plan in place. I know the questions I'm going to ask. I know what the suspect's background is. I've made 
judgments about his educational level. I've made judgments about what costume I'm going to wear when I go in the room. I've made decisions about where I'm going to do the interrogation, which is one of the biggest things that you have to decide. I only did about 10% of my interrogations actually in the interrogation room. In reality, what I told my detectives was your interrogation room is wherever you happen to be at the time. So much of what we do in interrogation is based on raising a suspect's anxieties to get them to show signs of deception. If I go out to a suspect's place of work and I go in and say, hi, John, I'm Detective Bishop. I'd like to talk to you about a child abuse investigation. Oh, my gosh, Detective Bishop, can we can we just go over here to the, the employee's lunchroom? I, I don't want them. What does he want me to do? He wants me to leave now because he doesn't want to be embarrassed at his place of work. Where's his anxiety level? It's over the moon. So I'm already ahead of the game because I have chosen the place where I want to do that interrogation. I will call up a suspect and say, hey, this Detective Bishop. There's a Starbucks down on the corner near your house. Would you meet me down there? Well, yeah, sure. So suspect will meet me because they're really, you know, they're not intimidated by this. They don't know what this is all about. They'll come down and I'll buy the guy a $5 latte. And we'll sit and we'll talk. And maybe we'll talk for 45 minutes. And I won't ask a single question about the case. But during that 45 minutes, he will tell me why he committed the crime. Well, Detective Bishop, you know, I, we've just bought a new house. I've got kids that are starting to private school. Did he just tell me why he embezzled the funds from his corporation? Yeah. But they don't realize that they're telling me that by talking with me. I'm establishing rapport. And so all of that stuff has got to be done prior to actually starting the interrogation. There's so much to it. But the more you front load your interrogation, the more successful you're going to be on the back end. I think the attributes of a good interviewer and a good interrogator are two things. They're very open and they listen. That's the biggest thing. They listen to what's being said. They're not just asking questions, trying to get answers that they expect. They're asking questions with a purpose and they're listening to the answers. The best interrogators that I know are very well-rounded individuals. They're very knowledgeable. They think about things all the time, and they're persistent. They have a personality that doesn't uh, upset people, that isn't abrasive, and they kind of absorb all of this stuff from the suspect with the goal of getting to the truth of the matter, and if the suspect is guilty, sending them to jail for the longest possible time. I actually had two careers in law enforcement. About five years after I was on the job, I began to publish professionally. And there's only two things I've ever wanted to do in life, and that was to put bad guys in jail and to put words on paper and be published. And I've been fortunate enough to do both of those. My first book was uh, called Citadel Run. It's now called uh, Hot Pursuit in this new age of publishing when we're able to change titles up. And it was based on an LAPD legend about uh, guys back in the 70s who would, on morning watch, drive from L.A. to either Vegas and back or Tijuana and back on duty in their police cars. And both of those would take about eight hours turnaround to do. 
And I took that idea and turned it into a grudge match between two sets of police officers and all the things that go on. And still to this day, I think it's one of the most unique plots I've ever come up with because it's specific to the Los Angeles Police Department. I followed that up with a book called Sand Against the Tide, which is now called uh, Deep Water. Every, all of my books are available on Amazon. That, again, was another unique plot to the LAPD. We used to take all of our confiscated guns and drugs and other property and put it on a garbage scow and take it out into the middle of the ocean and dump it. And eventually, we had whales that were beaching themselves on the California beaches with traces of PCP and other drugs in their brains. So they put this down directly to the dumps of the narcotics into the ocean. So we had to come up with another plan, and LAPD switched from doing that to burning all of this stuff. And my idea was the very last gal to go out for a property dump in the ocean is going to be hijacked for all the guns and drugs aboard it. And again, that was a plot that was specific to the LAPD. My latest book is called Lie Catchers, and it's about two interrogators for the LAPD. And what I wanted to do with that book was to get as close as I could to what interrogators actually do within a fictional setting. So everything that's in that book that happens, for better or worse, I've done at one point or another during my career. I did a show called uh, Take the Money and Run uh, for Jerry Bruckheimer, which was on for one season on ABC. It was a, a summer reality show. And uh, the basis was two individuals are given two hours to hide a briefcase of $100,000 anywhere in the city that they want that the show has access to 24-7. There were some certain rules to this. And then at the end of that time, they would be arrested, quote unquote, and they were brought down to a police station and incarcerated. And from that point on, my partner and I, working with two local law enforcement officers, had 48 hours to find that money through the use of interrogation techniques with the two suspects, quote unquote, that were in custody. If we didn't find the briefcase and the suspects got to keep the money, and if we did find the briefcase, then the two local law enforcement officers got to keep the money. And out of the six shows that we did, we found the money four times. And on one time, we were about 500 yards away from the money when time ran out. So we came close. I now do a podcast uh, for fun. One of my enthusiasms is the Western genre. So my partner and I do something called the Six Gun Justice Podcast, where every week we talk about various aspects of the Western genre in books, movies, television, radio shows, or any other media that's at home on the range. And we have a good time. It's just a matter of sharing the information that we have and our love of the genre with other people who have the same fascination. If somebody's interested in being a detective and is interested in sex crimes in particular, what I would have to say to them is look at life around you. Plato, the philosopher, said that the unexamined life is not worth living. And for me, one of the biggest advantages that I had as an interrogator was this wide ability to talk to anybody about any subject. Even if it was something that I knew nothing about, I knew how to ask questions about whatever it is subject that these people would want to talk about. 
and have an interesting conversation with them. I go all around the country now teaching interrogation seminars to law enforcement. And everywhere I go at their police academies, what I find is they teach people to drive fast, shoot straight, and just enough of the local penal code to get themselves in trouble. And all of those things are important. But there's not a single class in any academy that I've been to in communications. And that is 99% of our job is communicating with people. For me, for somebody preparing to go into law enforcement, if you're coming out of high school and, and you, you know, you're going to go to college, you're going to make some career choices in college, I was a criminal justice major. I would not recommend that to somebody today because when you go to the police academy, they teach you all of that. I would say go and be a business major. Go and learn about other things in the world that are going to be of use to you not only in your law enforcement career, but in life in general. If you go and you're specifically a criminal justice major, I think you're cutting your options short. Passing the police exam is a vital step towards becoming a law enforcement officer. GoLawEnforcement.com can help you pass the police exam and get a score that will get you hired. Check out GoLawEnforcement.com. Thanks for listening.